Uh, today is the last in this series of the seven signs of Christ. You can get that on our website. I hope it will bless you today. Uh, we're going to speak about Jesus defeating death, the last great enemy of humanity, as he will defeat death and bring Lazarus out of the tomb after he'd been entombed for four days. Next week, I'm going to start a new sermon series, uh, and it's entitled, What We Believe and Why. Uh, and this series will focus each week, week on some great foundational principle that we stand on as Christians and on this church. Uh, and so I hope that will bless you as well as we dive deep uh, into the scripture and how God expects us to live. And so here we go with one of the great miracles of all time, uh, Jesus coming to raise Lazarus out of the tomb after Lazarus has been entombed uh, for four days. And it is the greatest lesson, really, of all of the seven, because what it is, it demonstrates to us that Jesus has sovereignty over death. Over death, the last great enemy of humanity, death itself, and Jesus will demonstrate that he is sovereign over death. And in fact, what will happen a week later, Jesus himself will resurrect from the dead, from the cross, uh, and in which he will bring life forever to all of humanity that believes in him. And so this is a particularly powerful sign and important for us to focus in on it. Now, as I prepared this message, I wanted to focus on the reaction of various groups of people uh, to what Jesus is doing here. Uh, and Luke 10, verses 38 to 42, shows us a difference in character between Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus. Jesus was particularly close to this family. They were really his best friends as they lived in Bethany, a few miles from Jerusalem. And so what you see here, as Jesus had come to know them, Two very different characters. Mary, the contemplative one, uh, the studious one, uh, the worshipful one. Uh, Martha, the passionate one, the action one. We know that uh, at various times Mary would sit at the feet of Jesus and Martha would prepare the meals. And so what we're going to see here is that even though they had these disparate personalities, in the face of death they were both crushed. Uh, they were both crushed. And so as Jesus now comes to Bethany, after he gets the news about Lazarus, he comes to Mary, to Bethany. Martha rushes out to meet him, as you would expect in her character. Rushing out to meet him, Mary remains at home. Uh, but they're both in incredible anguish over the death of their brother. Uh, and Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. Now, that is an amazing statement because in some sense it shows the faith of Martha, and Mary ultimately said the same thing. It shows the faith, but it shows a limitation of faith. Yes, Jesus, we knew if you got here while he was sick, you could have cured him. But now he's in the grave. He's there for four days. There's nothing that you can do. And so they're confessing their limited faith in Jesus, uh, that Jesus certainly could have prevented the death, but now in the face of death itself, even Jesus couldn't do anything. 
And so Jesus, as only Jesus could do, corrected, corrected uh, Martha in John 11, verse 25. And he says, as he corrected her limited understanding of his kinship, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And this is a verse that we read at most uh, uh, funerals uh, and celebrations of life. We read it because it's the essence of why we walk with Christ. All right? He is the resurrection. He is the life. He is everything that the Bible tells us he is. He defeats death. He defeated it with Lazarus, and he will defeat it a week later on the cross itself. Yet the sisters did not fully grasp what he meant, the reality of this statement. They didn't understand it. They thought, yes, Jesus, you can prevent the onset of death, but they thought that all hope of restoring their brother to life was lost. Now, the wound of losing a loved one to death uh, is profound. And in many ways, it never heals, uh, even for those of us who are Christians. We understand that our loved ones are with the Lord, but there's still a scar there uh, as we mourn for the lost. And the, the sisters watched their brother die. He had been sick for a while, and they watched him pass away. They were most likely involved uh, in preparing him even for burial. Uh, and, and they stared into the eyes of death itself and watched death have victory over their brother. Uh, it's no wonder they had been uh, consumed with anguish, uh, with soul-wrenching anguish, as we all know even today what the impact of death is. Well, let's take this apart and look at the reaction of some of the participants. What about Lazarus? What does the Bible say? And that's all that counts. What does the Bible say about the reaction of Lazarus? Well, amazingly, nothing. There are no words from Lazarus. You would expect that Lazarus would have some significant testimony, but the Bible doesn't give us that. Uh, certainly, if I were there, I'd say, hey, Lazarus, what was it like? What would you see? What it look like on the other side? But you see how God is and the Holy Spirit? No, there's no words from Lazarus. The only thing that speaks from Lazarus is the fact he is alive and his body speak uh, volumes. The fact that he walks around and is alive spoke volumes. It was so significant, really, that really when you study theologians and study well, what was going on there, this act, more than any single act, uh, culminates in the death of Jesus. This is when the religious authorities said, that's it. That's it. He's got to go. We can't afford this. Lazarus walking around alive after being in a tomb for four days? Are you kidding? Jesus has to die. It spread volumes, it spoke. Um, and so what you see here is what happens when you refuse to believe in Christ. Even the uh, resurrecting of a dead man would not anoint their minds. Uh, and so what you see here is that the crowd is divided. 
the crowd is divided. And this is what happens with Jesus. And I would say this to you in your life. You're going to find that as you get closer to the cross, as you make a commitment to Christ in your life, there are going to be people in your life that are not going to want to be with you anymore. This could even be your family, all right? This will even be your family. There will be a separation in your life uh, because you've accepted Jesus Christ. Look at John 11, verse 45, where it says, Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary... And it's seen the things that Jesus did believed on him. Some of the Pharisees even believed, we know, later on as we study this. So many in the crowd believed, but many did not believe. And so we should not be surprised by the division in the crowd. We should not be surprised that Jesus is a divining rod uh, and, and winds up dividing us in so many ways. Uh, and, and what you see is it's the very foreshadowing of Judas himself, that someone who could walk with him for three years would still betray him. Uh, and so it's amazing to me is that whether Jesus is encountered as the incarnate son of God uh, with all of his powers uh, or proclaimed from the pulpit in the word uh, on the Lord's day, there are two only possible responses. Either one believes in Christ and accepts him, uh, or he rejects him. You see, there's no neutrality with Jesus. There's no neutrality. You either say yes, or you say no. Look at Luke 22, verse 34. When Jesus is brought to the temple as a baby to be blessed, and look what Simeon, that great man who waited there for that day, says to Mary, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Are you kidding me? The Son of God comes to this world and many will be against it. He will be opposed by many. You see, yes, that was the prophecy, all right, because that's what Jesus is. He is a dividing rod. Jesus cannot be ignored. I want you to understand this, and you need to know this as you spread the word of God. Either you're for him or you're against him. I often laugh when I hear people say, well, yes, you know, they're very intellectual. Yes, I believe that Jesus was a great prophet. He was a great man. He did a lot of good things, but I can't believe he was resurrected from the dead. I can't believe that he is God himself. Well, if that's your position, then frankly, you have reputed, uh, repudiated Jesus. You have not accepted him. He's not your Lord and Savior because it's very simple. It's yes or no. You cannot be neutral about our Christ. Now, what about the Jewish leaders? How did they react to this great event? Well, they reacted with incredible anxiety. Uh, the Jewish leaders learned about the death uh, uh, and resurrection of Lazarus by the neighbors who came and tried to rat Jesus out. Pardon my language, that's not in the Bible. But they, they were effectively betraying Jesus. And so they go, they go to the religious leaders and go, you should see what we just saw, Jesus. And I know you guys don't like him, but we saw him bring a guy out of the tombs who was there for four days. 
And so even though they opposed Jesus, it's amazing, isn't it? But even in their opposition to Jesus, Jesus, God, uses their very words to herald the power of Christ. There it is. They're speaking about Jesus. They're speaking about his power, even as they tried to knock him down. Uh, and so what happens? How do the religious leaders take it? Well, they're filled with anxiety. They're filled with hatred. Uh, they're filled with fear. Uh, Lazarus sitting there was an open uh, testament to the power of Christ. Nobody, nobody ever brought a guy out of a tomb after four days. And you know, when I study this passage, I often laugh uh, when I think about it. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said in a powerful voice, Lazarus, come out. And a theologian once said, if Jesus just said, come out, the entire tombs and all the bodies would have come out. <laughs> How's that? You like that? That's the power of God. That's the very power of Christ. And so they call, the religious leaders call the Sanhedrin together. We have to meet. We have to discuss. And these are the great religious elite, the institutional Jewry uh, of Israel. What are we going to do? It's so serious that it requires our joint attention. Can you imagine this? He raises a man from the dead, and your desire is to let's have a meeting so we can decide what we're going to do with this guy. Uh, and so they were afraid that Jesus would become so popular that an insurrection would come about, that the people would come and raise him as a popular leader and that the Romans would have to intervene. Well, of course, Jesus would never do such a thing. Jesus never espoused political power. Uh, he repudiated that. He often said, give Caesar that which is Caesar. Give God that which is God. And so Jesus would never do it, but they had this fixation in their mind because all they cared about was their own institutional power, all right? That's what they cared about. That's what their will was. Uh, and so they wanted to control their power, control the people, and be afraid of giving the Romans some decision to take over. They were moreover afraid even more so because Passover would be near. And so in John chapter 11, 48, uh, they say these fateful words. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and then the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? In fact, what would happen because of the action of what they would do, that they would murder Jesus put him on a cross, and as a result of that, Christ had told them that not one stone would be left on the temple. And 40 years later, the Romans come in and devastate Jerusalem. Over a million people will die. They say, when you study this, that the blood in, in the city was six inches deep and the, the temple is taken apart, all right? You understand that this is the judgment of God, all right? And so you ignored what Christ said. You were concerned about yourself. And this is what happens when you're concerned about yourself and don't put God first. And so look what Caiaphas, all right, the chief priest says. Uh, and he says this poignant phrase, which I'm always amazed when I read it. Uh, because here's a man who vehemently opposed Christ. 
uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, said, Jesus must die to save the nation from the peril of the Romans. How about that? Jesus must die in order to save the people. How poignant and ironic. Yes, Jesus must die to save all of us, to save all of us. But he didn't understand that. He reasoned that it was expedient, you see, that one man should die for the people and the whole nation perish not. That's John 11, verse 50. One man should die so that the entire nation wouldn't, per- wouldn't die. His argument, you see, convinced the Sanhedrin Uh, that they needed to look for a way to kill Jesus. And within seven or eight or nine days from this event, Jesus would be put on a cross. Uh, And so you see the the irony of this. And so they feared that Jesus would destroy the temple. Jesus would cause a popular uh, uprising. Jesus would cause the Romans to come in. And so he dies, and 40 years later, all of their fears come to completion uh, as, as they are wiped out, as Jerusalem is wiped off the face of the earth. Uh, and so, yes, salvation, salvation for the Jews could only come by the atoning death of Christ. That's it. There's only one way you can be saved, by believing in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And so here it is. Jesus looks into death looks at what Lazarus is, raises him from the dead, and as a result of that, Jesus will be summarily sentenced to death. Now, when Jesus first learned of Lazarus' illness, he responded by saying that this sickness will not ultimately end in death. Well, Lazarus dies. And so Jesus had allowed the sickness to run its course course, responding to death. But he did it because he understood that this sickness, this death, would result in the glory of God, God being glorified. And so he purposely delayed coming to Bethany. He delayed because he wanted Lazarus to be entombed for four days because the Jews, for some reason, believed that even within three days, someone could be revived. I have no idea what that's predicated on. But for, that's what their popular belief was. And so Jesus said, fine, we'll wait four days. All right, we'll wait four days. And I can tell you, if he waited 10 days, it wouldn't have mattered. All right, it wouldn't have mattered. Uh, and so John 11, verse 6 says that Jesus and his disciples remained right where they were for two days, knowing that Lazarus was, was near death. Now, why did Jesus wait Why did he allow the sisters to suffer? Why did he allow Lazarus to die? And this is a message that resonates for you today. Uh, And this is how God works. Jesus remained where he was because the purpose of what would happen next transcended the lives of three people. And I want to say this to you. There are people in this church who are suffering, who are hurting, who are very sick. I want you to understand that if you have not been healed, even though you have prayed for healing, continue to pray. But I want you to understand, God has a purpose for your life. God has a purpose for you, even in your sickness. 
God knows who you are. He knows where you are. And I would say this, that God's power transcends everything, even as you are in this point of sickness. And so by waiting for several more days, uh, Jesus is making certain that the glory of God would resonate throughout Jerusalem. And so it's quite clear. And so when Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, the crowd around him, Jesus sees Martha and Mary overcome with grief. He sees the crowd uh, mourning horrendously. And in John 11, verse 35, we see one of the most poignant verses in the Bible and the shortest verse. We see the verse that says, Jesus wept. I love that verse. I love that verse. Nothing tells me more about the heart of our Lord than that verse. Jesus wept. What does it mean? Uh, it means that Jesus is the God-man, the Son of God incarnate. Yet in his human nature, he understands all your grief, all your temptation. He feels everything that you're going through. You know, someone said that it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was the love. Not the nails that kept him on the cross, but the love. Because he could have come down at any point and been administered to by angels, but yet he stayed there. He was made like us in every single way. He felt the grief. He felt the sorrow, yet he was without sin. And so after weeping, however, Jesus really is filled with indignation and anger. Uh, as John 11, verse 33 says, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Why do you think he groaned in the spirit? Because he saw what had happened to the creation that God had started. He saw what had happened in the Garden of Eden. This was not how life was to end for humanity. We were never intended to die, but instead, at the Garden of Eden, we succumbed to sin. And sin came into this world and crushed the creation, crushed humanity. And everything that you see and experience in this world that's not right all came about because of sin. And so now Jesus is foreshadowing his imminent encounter with death, death itself. And so he's filled with anger uh, as he sees this great enemy of humanity, death itself. And so Jesus is preparing himself for this battle that will take place. He's preparing himself for this great adversary as he stands in front of the tomb. Death is the consequence of sin. Make no mistake about it. It is part of the wages of sin. Uh, but death had no mastery over Jesus Christ. He stands alone as our sovereign God. And so as Jesus was sovereign over this enemy, Jesus cried out in a long voice, a loud voice on John chapter 11, verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. And death had no choice, for it had to obey Jesus' command. The raising of Lazarus was only a prelude to the battle that Jesus would make of death against all the forces of evil that he would make within the next week when he himself would die on the cross. And so this seventh sign pales in comparison to what Jesus will do on the cross in the next week. But it culminates 
all of the seven signs as you see the power of Christ, the power of God. Only one person, only one person could defeat death. Yes, Jesus did all of the other miracles that are contained in this sign, but only one could defeat death. And so your view of death and the resurrection of Lazarus has eternal significance, like all of the signs of Jesus. This sign was given to you to open your eyes to the reality of who Christ was, that you're dead in your trespasses unless you accept Christ. You need Jesus to raise you from a spiritual death. And so in a spiritual and metaphorical sense, we're all Lazarus. We're all walking around as dead men unless we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so you need to collectively look at all of these signs and understand them. And when you, ex- when you collectively look at all the signs, you get a clear picture of who Christ is and what the gospel is all about. Look, each one built progressively on the one before it. And thus the seventh sign, the raising of Lazarus, really is the culminating sign, the clearest lens by which you can see who Jesus is, the Son of God. Moreover, the raising of Lazarus foreshadows what's going to take place in a week when Jesus will be put on the cross where he will be crucified and then three days later he will be resurrected forever to sit next to God himself. What an amazing period of time in the history of this world. Uh, Now this is important because there are post-resurrection instances which give you insight into how Christ understands this and what, re- what, it's, what it's meant for us to understand. And if you look at John chapter 20, we see the disciple Thomas struggling to accept the fact that Jesus is alive. I can't believe it. He died on the cross. I saw him buried. He can't possibly be alive. Uh, and so he did not accept the testimony of the other disciples. But he indicated he would have to put his hands in the nail-scarred hands of Christ. He'd have to put his hands in the side of Christ, which was pierced by a sword. He had to do that. And if he did it, then he would believe. But without that, he wouldn't believe. Well, guess what? Eight days later, eight days later, Jesus comes to him uh, and says to him, put your hands in my side. Put your hands in my nail-scarred hands. And after seeing Jesus, Thomas declared his face with these words in John chapter 20, verse 28. My Lord and my God. And he bows and worships him. Jesus lovingly accepted Thomas' profession of faith. But he also promised a blessing to those who believed without the aid of signs. You understand there would no more be signs. God gave you the signs. Now it would be the the testimony of the disciples, the power of the Holy Spirit-driven word of God. That's what you would get, and that's what Christ would expect you to hear and come to faith. From that time on, people would be blessed by believing because of the proclaimed word of God uh, and the gospel itself. John emphasizes here that the age of visible signs has ended. And that the age of the disciples, written testimony, and spoken word about Christ would be everything that you would have in order to believe. The resurrection changes everything. 
Uh, the resurrection demonstrates God's full sovereignty and acceptance of the work of Jesus Christ. The validating stamp of God on the work of Christ in every way. God's validating stamp on the efficacy and power of the gospel. Listen, the resurrection reveals that Jesus Christ has fully accomplished our redemption from sin, from Satan, from death, and the wrath of God. All of it accomplished on the cross by our Lord and Savior, giving his life voluntarily, staying on the cross because of love for you. The resurrection rests like a glorious crown upon Jesus, on our ascended king. You can never really appreciate God unless you understand that he gave his son to be crucified like that. You can never experience Christ unless you recognize what he gave for you in his love. Without the resurrection of Christ, all of our preaching is in vain. Let's go home and have pancakes. We're wasting our time. I've wasted my life. All these sermons that I get up and preach are for naught if Jesus didn't resurrect from the grave. And I want you to know, with every molecule in my body, with every bit of air that I have, I know for sure he resurrected from the dead and he stands at the right hand of God. Man. And so I want to say to you now this morning, embracing, embracing the resurrected Christ is the final challenge for an unbeliever. I don't care what you've done or where you've been or what your history is. When you embrace the resurrected Christ, you will be with him forever. You will never die. Yes, you'll die in this world, but you will have eternal life. And so some people, some people profess allegiance to Jesus while denying the truth of the resurrection. But such a position is impossible to contain. You cannot maintain that position without belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is meaningless. And so finally, 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 after these weeks of me preaching the seven signs, this, this is the lesson that culminates and puts it all together. The challenge of these seven signs is not just something to be believed, but it's something to be lived. You understand? You have to live this. You have to understand it's not just head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. You have to take what Christ has done and take it into your life and incorporate it into your life and live that way and walk with Christ so that the world knows who you are. And so when a person becomes a Christian, uh, it is something to be lived every day of our life. He makes you a new person. You're not the same person you were. You are now united with the risen Christ. You understand that? And in a spiritual sense, you are resurrected with him. You are part of his resurrection. You walk with him. You cannot be the same. You cannot speak the same. And that's why Jesus is the great dividing rod in this world. There are people who now will not be able to be with you because they see who you are. The light comes out from you. And you know what? Darkness hates the light. 
Let's understand this. And so the resurrection should bear fruit in every Christian's life. And so if you're not bearing fruit, if you're the same as you were before, then I have to say to you, have you truly accepted the death of Christ? Have you truly walked with him? Because if you have, you cannot be the same. It's impossible. You can't be the same. You have to be different because the light of Christ, the spirit of the holy God is in your heart, and you can never be the same. Every believer must know the power of the risen Christ. That's the job that you have, to leave here and go out to a lost world and give that message in your life, in your heart. Let them see the light coming from you and knowing that Jesus Christ is resurrected, standing at the right hand of God, and that someday you will be there with him as well. Amen, church? Let's bow our head. Lord, I thank you for this message. Lord, I thank you what you have done with the resurrected Christ. I thank you that you have brought this alive to us this morning. Lord, I pray that this message resonates with us and empowers us and causes us to be completely imbued with your power, to leave here today under that power, to go out to the world and give the world this message that it desperately needs. Jesus is alive. And he is saving us, and we will one day be with him in paradise. Father, bless our church. Let them incorporate this in everything they do as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.